Even non-lawyers talk about contracts. But do you really know what a contract is? On this episode of... It's the Keith Law PLLC Podcast, and I'm Jason Keith, attorney in Houston, Texas. Keith Law is a Texas-based law firm that helps businesses protect and enhance their competitive advantages by assisting with trademark issues and identifying and protecting trade secrets. The firm's goal is to help businesses prevent and address business problems, and I hope this podcast will do the same. This week, I thought about delving into a specific type of contract, but then I figured it might make more sense to take a step back and go over the basics of what a contract actually is. Take a look at the show notes for an outline of this episode and to see the highlights. This episode is not a law school course. In law school, you'll probably have to study contracts over two school terms, and I only mention that to suggest that there are many rabbit trails you can go down when talking about the law governing contractual relationships, defenses, various specialized contracts, exceptions, exceptions to exceptions, and exceptions to those exceptions to exceptions, etc., etc. All I'm attempting to do with this episode is provide the basic explanation of what constitutes a contract. If you have a special legal situation, you should always consult your trusted attorney in your jurisdiction to get a professional analysis of your specific situation. First, I want to talk about the breach of contract cause of action. In several episodes, I've mentioned the breach of contract cause of action, and by way of reminder, or for the first time if you haven't tuned in before, a cause of action is a legal theory that a plaintiff, that's the person suing, must establish for legal relief, such as an injunction or money judgment, to become available. The analogy that I always use is as a cake recipe, you have to have every ingredient or the cake won't turn out right. Similarly, when you're proving a cause of action, you have to have every essential element of that cause of action, or you can't access a remedy from the court. The court just can't give you the remedy you're asking for. The breach of contract cause of action has five essential elements, which I usually distill down to three, but I'm going to give you all five here. Element one, there is a valid enforceable contract. Two, the plaintiff is a proper party to bring the lawsuit for breach of contract. Three, the plaintiff performed, tendered performance, or was excused from performing the plaintiff's contractual obligations. Four, the defendant breached the contract. And five, the defendant's breach caused the plaintiff's injury. This episode is focused on element one, the enforceable contract. So what is an enforceable contract? As a practicing attorney, when I use the word contract, I'm usually referring to an enforceable contract. When it comes to the situations I deal with, if a contract is not enforceable, it doesn't make much sense to call it a contract, even though the enforceability might be in dispute. But for purposes of this episode, I will be focusing on what an enforceable contract actually is because there may be arrangement that folks refer to as contracts that are not actually enforceable contracts. An enforceable contract is simply a contract that can be enforced in a court of law. These are civil courts at law. Because breach of contract is a civil cause of action, criminal courts have nothing to do with this. 
When a court enforces a contract, it almost always results in a money judgment as the form of enforcement. Only in special circumstances would the court's enforcement look like specific performance. And specific performance is the court-ordered physical performance of a contractual duty in certain situations where a money judgment would not be an adequate remedy. Although a detailed analysis of what constitutes an enforceable contract can be broken down into five elements, for this episode, I'm narrowing it down to the three most essential components of an enforceable contract. One is the offer, two, the acceptance, and three, the consideration supporting the contract. This third element, called consideration, basically means an exchange of value but I'll dig into consideration later on in this episode. First, let's talk about the offer. A valid offer is required for the existence of an enforceable contract. A valid offer requires the following three elements. One, that the offerer intentionally made an offer. The content and language must show with reasonable certainty an intent to enter into a binding agreement with the offeree. And this is as opposed to thinking out loud, talking in their sleep, or mentioning something that would be nice to have. The second element of a valid offer is that the terms of the offer were clear and definite as opposed to vague. And the third element of an offer is that the offeror communicated the essential terms of the offer to the offeree. First, the offeror must be someone authorized to make the offer. And the offer can be made orally or in writing, and it becomes effective when communicated to the offeree, but an offer cannot be inferred from the offeror's silence. So we just talked about offer in the context of what constitutes an enforceable contract. Now I'll talk about acceptance. After a valid offer has been made, the offeree, the person receiving the offer, can either accept or reject it. And by the way, Just as an aside, a counteroffer serves as a rejection and a whole new offer. Although acceptance can be broken down into four elements, for purposes of this post, I'm only breaking it down into the following three elements. Element one, the acceptance was timely, meaning it wasn't too late to be effective. Two, the acceptance was communicated to the offeror or the offeror's authorized agent And three, the acceptance was clear and definite. It wasn't vague. If the acceptance does not mirror the important terms of the offer, then it is not really an acceptance, but instead it's a rejection and a counteroffer. Now that we've talked about the offer and acceptance, it's time to talk about consideration. An enforceable contract must be based on consideration. And consideration is often formally referred to as mutuality of obligation. But I usually just refer to consideration as an exchange of value. A contract without consideration is not enforceable, and I would say that it's not really a contract at all. For example, if someone offers to perform a service gratuitously, there is no consideration because there is no corresponding promise to pay for the service. That's not a contract, and it's not enforceable. Instead, if performed, I would call it a gift. Before it's performed, I would call it a promised gift that if not performed, 
That may be unfortunate, but it's not enforceable in a court of law. A more formal definition of consideration is the bargained-for exchange of promises. And it consists of either a benefit to the promisor, the person making the promise, or a loss or detriment to the promisee, that's the person who receives the promise. And the loss or detriment to the promisee can include promising to forego a right of the promisee, even if doing so is in the promisee's best interest, such as promising to stop smoking in exchange for payment. Like many legal concepts, consideration is a topic that can lead to a deep dive and could easily be the focus of one or even a series of episodes. But as I said at the outset, this is not intended to be a law school course. What you need to know is that enforceable contracts require consideration, which is an exchange of value. Does an enforceable contract have to be in writing? No, an enforceable contract does not have to be in writing unless required to be in writing by the statute of frauds. The statute of frauds. And a statute is just a written law created by Congress. In Texas, the statute of frauds can be found in the Texas Business and Commerce Code at section 26.01. In the Texas statute of frauds, eight situations require a promise or agreement to be in writing to constitute an enforceable contract. And a few of those that might be worth mentioning here include a promise by one person to take responsibility for another person's debt, default, or other liability, a contract for the sale of real estate must be in writing, a contract for a real estate lease if it's for longer than one year, any agreement that's not performable within one year from the date of making that agreement has to be in writing, and a loan agreement where the amount loaned exceeds $50,000. In addition to statute of frauds, a defendant in a breach of contract lawsuit may have any number of possible defenses, as always depending on the specific circumstances. This episode's not focused on explaining any of these defenses, but it might be useful to give you a non-exclusive list of possible defenses just to provide an overview of the breadth of possibilities. Defendants may defend a breach of contract lawsuit based on the following and possibly other defensive categories. And just running through these, these categories can include formation problems, lack of capacity, illegality of the subject matter, impossibility, duress, unconscionability, undue influence, violation of the statute of frauds, statute of limitations, Mistake, misrepresentation, fraud, commercial impracticability, and frustration of purpose. Whether any of these defenses actually exists requires an analysis, and if the defense is asserted, it will ultimately be decided by the judge or jury. The most important takeaways from this episode are that an enforceable contract requires an offer, acceptance, and consideration that consideration means an exchange of value, that contracts do not have to be in writing unless required by the statute of frauds, that there are many possible defenses to a breach of contract lawsuit, and lastly, that every step of the analysis can go very deep. 
Subscribe to the Keith Law PLLC podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Check the show notes for information related to this episode. And if you have a question about the episode, email me or schedule a call using my Calendly link found in the show notes and on my website at www.keith.law. When you use the Calendly link to schedule a call, please include information so that I can have a chance to prepare for your question before I call you at the time you selected. Disclaimer, this audio is for informational purposes only and should not be misinterpreted as legal or other professional advice. If you have a legal question, you should consult with an attorney in your jurisdiction. This is Jason Keith thanking you for listening to the Keith Law PLLC podcast.